Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today as we begin a new worship series with a kind of strange title, right? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, But I'm real excited about it because it's about a very um, foundational topic for Christianity, the Trinity. And it offers us a great opportunity to sort of um, reclaim what we know and believe and and, uh, help better identify the way that works. So I'm glad you're here. If If you're new here, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, We always want to welcome our online community, grateful that you're with us. And if you haven't checked in, I sure want to invite you to do so, uh, just so that we can get to know you just a little bit better. When I think about everything, everywhere, all the time, I think a little bit about oxygen, because it's kind of everywhere in all things all the time, right? But if you're like me, you probably don't think about oxygen, right? I mean, it's just kind of out there, and it's nice to have, and you're glad it's there, but you just kind of go on with your life, right? Unless, of course, you've ever had COPD or oxygen issues or uh, pneumonia, right? You, you know real quick how important oxygen is. But we just tend not to think about it. It's absolutely fundamental to who we are and how we live because we need oxygen, right? There's absolutely two things we have to have, oxygen and water. We can survive. And oxygen just kind of goes on and we don't think about it. And I wonder if I think about sort of Christian theology and doctrine, if the Trinity isn't a highly similar concept, we are grateful it's there, we know that it's there, and we just don't think about it much. It's extremely fundamental and foundational to who we are. In fact, if you were to go to any church website, any denominational website, any religious organization website, and if they have on their website their statement of belief, you know what the first thing is? The Trinity. I mean, it's just right there. Either they're going to start with God and who God is and what God does, or they're going to start with the Trinity. It's that foundational, right? It's basic to all we have. And the creeds came out of that, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They make those statements very clearly, and they, they identify how it is we believe these statements and these professions of faith. And yet something that's absolutely fascinating, at least to me, is that if you read Scripture, you see that the word Trinity doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, it took almost 400 years for the church collectively to create a doctrinal statement about what the Trinity is. And yet at the same time, it's sprinkled throughout Scripture through all, all throughout the Hebrew Scripture and the Christian Scriptures. I think in particular about what we now call the Great Commission, right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right there. We, we didn't identify it as the Trinity back then, but, but it was clearly there. And when the Apostle Paul writes to several churches, uh, there are times in which he sort of gives a blanket um, thanksgiving and and benediction, if you will, to the community of faith to whom he's writing. I look, for instance, at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul begins to lay out what we now actually offer as a benediction when he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be always with you. There it is, right? The Holy Trinity. And so it was within the first two centuries of the church, after the Scriptures were written and after Jesus was raised from the dead, that the church began to talk about this and kind of try to nail down what they believed and what they understood. It took a while. In fact, it took until the second century when a guy named Tertullian, you ever heard that name? Tertullian. He was a Christian author and philosopher, and he's the one who developed that, and uh, that's what he looks like. They didn't have cameras back then. I don't know if you knew that or not, but... 
Tertullian is the one who coined the phrase Trinity. He was writing in Latin, and he identified what this doctrine was, if you will, and he put a name to it. He called it Trinity. Then it was another 150 years or so before the councils started to meet, the councils, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381. It's at these councils that they sort of formalized and gave structure to the doctrine of the Trinity. These are the councils from which we get the Nicene Creed and eventually the Apostles' Creed, right? Then you tootle along for another 150 years or so, and it's in the 5th century that a guy named Augustine, you may have heard of Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, uh, he was a bishop in the church. It was in the 5th century that Augustine not only uh, had written his confessions about which he's the best known, but he also writes a book, 15 volumes. It took him 15 volumes to enumerate the Trinity. Oh my gosh, are you going to read 15 volumes? In that 15 volumes, he identifies a definition, and he actually begins to enumerate several, in fact, 20 different analogies about the Trinity. And it's from the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople and uh, Augustine's writings that we begin to identify our understanding of the Trinity. The definition goes something like this. They're going to put it on the screen. I'm just going to read it out loud for you. God is one divine being that exists in three persons, co-equal and co-eternal, of one essence, nature, power, action, and will. That's a bunch of words, right? But basically, God is a divine being, not human, but divine, in one being but three persons. We're going to spend more time on that over these next three weeks. Uh, and they are co-equal and co-eternal. All that means is the Son and the Spirit are equal with God, co-equal, and they are co-eternal. That means they are with God from the beginning. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are with God from the beginning, co-equal, co-eternal. And they all have the same substance and essence and will and power, right? That's the Trinity. And in these 15 volumes, I, I think he must have known when he wrote them that people are not going to read 15 volumes about the Trinity, right, except strange people like me or other folks who might read that. I haven't read all 15. But he developed what he called seven summary statements. And these are the kind of things we can grab hold of, right? Seven simple statements that identify the Trinity. Now, Augustine did not create this graphic, but I'm going to put the graphic up on the, uh, on the screen. And it's in this graphic that you capture the seven summary statements of what the Trinity is. You start in the middle. God is the Father, right? And God is the Spirit, and God is the Son. That's the first three summary statements, right? God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. But notice on the outward ring, the Father up at the top is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. There are six summary statements. And then go back to the middle. There is but one God, right? I can grasp hold of that, can't you, right? I mean, I can handle that, and I'd much rather… Those were the original cliff notes for the 15 volumes, right? We just get seven summary statements that help us better understand. And the other thing that Augustine did that I absolutely love, this is 1,500 years ago, he begins to unpack a whole bunch of different analogies, acknowledging that all analogies fall short, 
But he starts, of course, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because that's scriptural. That identifies straight from Scripture what we just identified from Matthew and, and, and Corinthians. But he also says, look, I, I think there are other ways to understand this, and I want you to understand this in a myriad of ways so that you can sort of embed it in your heart and discover it for your life. Now, we're not going to go over all 20, but I wanted to enumerate two because they're fascinating to me. One analogy that uh, Augustine uh, portrays 1,500 years ago is this image. God is lover. Jesus is the beloved. And the Holy Spirit is love. God is the lover of all creation that God created and laid out for everyone. Jesus is the beloved. Remember when he gets baptized, he's, uh, that God says to everybody, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? And then the Holy Spirit is love. That is to say, we embed ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit and we ought to love the way the Holy Spirit loves. Now, the second imagery, one of the other 20, is just weird. It's not religious in any way, shape, or form, but I thought it was kind of fascinating. It's memory understanding and will. And you think to yourself like I did, I hope you did, memory, understanding, well, what's religious about that? It's not really religious so much as it's trying to help portray the image of unity, the three in one. One can't really have memory unless one understands what that memory was about. And one can't live out that memory or understand that memory unless one's will is committed to it. Are you confused? Yeah. It's just an analogy, right? It falls short, and it has no theological background other than these three things, memory, understanding, and will, must somehow be coordinated together, right? Then as we come into the 20th century, we begin to have a few other images of the Trinity that are simply and solely different ways to relate to the same concept. One that I found that I found uh, phenomenal as an, a modern rendering of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God beyond us, God is out there. God created all things and is beyond who we are and different from who we are as humanity. And the God among us, Jesus, Emmanuel, who is God with us, right? And God who is within us, the Holy Spirit, resides and dwells within us. It's a beautiful image. And yet another fourth one, a contemporary one, is simply God the Creator, God who created all things, God the Redeemer found in Jesus who redeems us, and God the Sustainer, the Holy Spirit, who sustains us in our ways. These are both ancient and modern ways to understand God who is one and yet three, right? About 15 years ago, there was a fascinating book. Some of you I know read it. I, I was enamored by it. It's called The Shack. Did you ever read The Shack? It was not designed to be a treatise on theology. It was not designed to identify doctrinal statements by any stretch of the imagination. It was actually a, a kind of historical novel about the author, William Paul Young's understanding of God. And if you read the book, you understand that it was a very modern and unique rendering of the, whole, of the Trinity because the Trinity was represented by God as an African-American woman, Jesus as a Mediterranean uh, uh, carpenter, and the Holy Spirit as a young Asian woman. All for the sole purpose of demonstrating that this Trinity, this absolutely foundational doctrine of our faith helps us to know that God wants to be in relationship with us. And if you read the book, you realize that's what he needed. That's what uh, Mac needed was a relationship with God and an understanding of God in a deeply personal way. And the book, of course, portrayed that well. What I'd love to say to us about this gift of God's holy trinity for all of creation 
I believe that the very essence of the Trinity is this one singular understanding, that God's nature is relational, that the very nature of who God is is relational, relational with self, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Godhead and God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. God is relational, one with each other, and God wants to be in relationship with us. This is God's yearning and God's desire, and the Trinity helps us to better understand that. God, I believe, can't even exist outside of relationship with self and with others. I think the Trinity helps identify that for us and helps us to sort of begin to understand, and that's why the shack was so helpful, because it made it relational, right? Very personal and therefore more understandable versus simply a doctrine. That we, sim- that we claim but don't always wrap our minds around. God's nature is relational. I ran across this statement. I, I don't remember who said it, but it-, it makes so much sense in regards to the Holy Trinity. God is not a proposition to be debated, but a presence to be experienced. Wouldn't you say that one of the reasons you follow this God and place your life in union with His Son, Jesus, and desire to follow in the power of the Holy Spirit is because of the encounter that you have had with God, whatever that was, whether it was when you were young or whether it was yesterday, it's that experience of God that helps you to know that God is real, that God wants to be in relationship with you, that God desires to offer you hope and healing. God is a presence that is to be experienced. So when we talk about the Holy Trinity, we start with the God, God our Father, God our lover, God the Creator, and we talk about the first person of the Trinity. And even in our human nomenclature, we can't even make that work, right, because God isn't a person And our human language can't fully describe it. The first person, God the Father, the second person, God the Son, and the third person, God the Holy Spirit. God is one divine being, but made known in three different persons. We're so inadequate in our language. And yet it's real that God is this powerful creator. That's what our creeds say, right? We start with the creed. You, you recited this morning the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to invite you to recite the, the words of God for the portion of the Trinity that we start with, God the Father. Will you read the words of the Apostles' Creed for me that are on the screen? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is all the creed gives us about God. The whole rest of the creed, you will recall, is about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit. But we start very simplistically, very straightforwardly. This is the God who is almighty. This is the God who is above all other gods. This is the God who put all things into motion, right? The Nicene Creed says a highly similar thing, but it it, it enumerates it just a little bit longer. So recite with me the portion of the Nicene Creed that speaks to the nature of God. We believe in one God, the Father the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. You see how that elaborates just a little bit. still says God the Father Almighty, still says the maker of heaven and earth, but it goes on to just make sure we're clear. This is everything, everything you see and everything you may not see. This is the God in whom we place our whole faith and trust. This God is a desirable God 
to be in relationship with, right? And a part of the gift is to know that this God is above all, in all, through all. This is the God who has no creator but is the creator, and we are the created. And a part of our goal is to always keep that straight because anytime we sort of act as a creator, trying to make new things or trying to make things that aren't necessarily humanly made, right? We make huge mistakes, friends, and we need to recognize our order in the creation. God came before all that is. God placed all that is in order, and we are a part of that order, not the orderer, right? I love this concept about God. This is the God who needs to be celebrated. This is the God who begins the whole concept of the Trinity. And there are several psalms that speak of this wonder, but I want to invite you to join me in reciting portions of Psalm 136 that celebrate this creating God, this God who puts all things into motion. There's going to be a, what's called an antiphon. That's just a fancy word for, hey, just repeat this phrase, okay? So it'll be in bold, his faithful love endures forever. Will you join with me in Psalm 136, if you'll just read the bold? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. Give thanks to him who placed the earth among the waters. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. The sun to rule the day. And the moon and the stars to rule the night. This is the God that deserves our attention. This is the God whose faithful love endures throughout all eternity and for every intimate moment in our lives. The Hebrew Scriptures would give this God huge numbers of names to help us better identify. This is the Lord Almighty. This is the God who provides. This is the God who is our shepherd. This is the God who is a rock. This is the God who is our fortress. This is the God who is with us and among us, right? This is the God who helps us to better know and relate to. And so over time, we began to describe this God as both transcendent and eminent. And those are big old words, I know, but here's all they mean. Transcendent God is the God who's beyond us, who's above us, who made all things, who is the creator. That God is transcendent and somehow not a part of who we are. And yet that same God is eminent. That same God knows our name. That same God calls us by name. That same God loves us just as we are. That same God wants to be an intimate personal relationship with us. Our God, that God above all gods, the one true God, is both transcendent and eminent. And the beauty of that God is that God, who made all things possible, knows every inch of your body and your heart, your mind and your soul. It's why when Moses 
ask this God, hey, I'm going to go talk to those Egyptians, and they're going to want to know your name, and, and I know that if they know your name, they'll be able to better understand you, and, and hopefully, uh, in Moses' thoughts, better know about you, right? So what's your name, God? You remember God's response? It's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God simply said, you tell them I am who I am. You tell those Israelites, not only the, the Egyptians, but you tell those Israelites, I am has sent you. <laughs> I am is a be verb. That's God's name. God's name is because God is who God will be. God is what God will be. God can't be contained in a box. God can't be given a specific name. God can't be described in any specific format. God is beyond all of those things. God is bigger than all those things. You tell them I am who I am. I am in all things, beyond all things, desire for you all good things. That's who I am, says God. And that's the God who we claim. And that's the God who gives life. And that's the God who desires for us to share that good news with other people. You know, God is so infinitely indescribable and yet, every one of us and every one of God's creations is made in God's image. I need you to pause and hear this. Every single human being across the eight billion who reside on this blue globe, every one of them is made in the image of God. What does that then therefore say about how we are to emulate this God's being in whose image we have been made? All of those descriptors have been helpful. The rock, the refuge, the shepherd, the stone, the, the word, the almighty, all of that has been helpful. And I also reflect on some of the words from Scripture of the New Testament that identify us a very specific way to understand God and therefore be like as best we can. John tells us out of Jesus' own mouth in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. In other words, God's not like us. God is spiritual. God is a spiritual being, a divine being, but we are to emulate that as best we can. And then in John's first letter, he wrote three. In John's first letter, he says that God is love. And a part of what that begins to say to me is that we need to demonstrate that love of this God who claims us and who put all things into being. We need to love in God's way and we need to demonstrate God's spirit in all that we say and do. And when we do, we will begin to help others know of the power and the wonder and the joy and the dynamics of this God who is the Almighty, who is the first person of the Trinity, the one true God, and the one who made heaven and earth both all that is seen and all that is unseen. This God needs to be celebrated. <laughs> this God needs to be shared. This God needs to be offered adulation and honor and glory. 
this God ought to be a part of every thought and part of our being. This God is good. And this is the God who we claim. This is the God who put everything into being. And again, the Psalms speak volumes, but I want to encourage you to read aloud with me Psalm 100 that speaks about how this God ought to be celebrated and lifted high, how this God ought to be honored with all of our being. Will you unite with me in one voice as we claim Psalm 100? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. This God is your God. This God is our God. This God is the one true God who claims for all of the world that love can be real, that God is beyond any comprehension, and yet God knows every breath that we breathe, every thought that we have, every desire of our heart, and every wandering to love you so that you can love others. This God is both transcendent and eminent right here. Thanks be to God that that's the God that we claim, and that's the God who has our heart, and that's the God who will lead us well, because that God is in everything and is everywhere all at once. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Holy and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lover, beloved, and love, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. God, we give you thanks that you made this creation, that you honored us by allowing us to be a part of your creation, and that you give us life and life abundant. God, help us claim this day that great joy and that great gift that we might help others to know of its power and of its wonder in our own lives. God, thank you that you are the God above all gods, that you are the Lord among all lords. You are the one true God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.